Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Hello, and welcome to the FT Arts Podcast. I'm Raphael Abraham, the FT's assistant arts editor, and today we'll be discussing The Tree of Life, the new film by veteran director Terence Malick. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last month to cheers and boos from the audience and went on to win the Palme d'Or. Some critics hailed it as a masterpiece. One Time Out critic called it probably the best thing I've seen in my career as a film journalist, but others have dismissed it as pretentious twaddle. So what makes this such a significant release and why is it so divisive? Ahead of its release in the UK on Friday, I'm joined in the studio by Nick James, editor of Sight & Sound magazine, Peter Aspden, the FT's arts writer, and Leo Robson, film critic. The film is partly a family drama and coming-of-age story set in 1950s Texas, but it also contains long sequences that delve into the natural world and the origins of the universe. Nick, the film has been called ambitious. Do you think this is a big film? Oh, it's huge. It's massive in terms of its scope of ambition. It, you know, it, it's a film about you know, the business of being, being in the world when things go horribly wrong um, and how you spiral back from you know, the microcosm of the family and uh, uh, to, to the origins of the universe itself. You know? So it's kind of, uh, it begins with a man speculating about his past uh, and, and a tragedy and he speculates further, we imagine, it's him that's doing the speculating, about the whole of mankind. And you see this unfold before you with an awesome array of, uh, you know, cinemas, weapons, if you like, uh, including you know, dazzling uh, soundtrack music of classical variety um, and astonishing kind of circling cinematography and delight in the magic hour light and all the rest of it. It's, a, it's that kind of... Uh, artistic statement of the grand kind that's a great summing up but do you think the whole thing sort of hangs together well it depends on your point of view i mean i i mean i do think it hangs together from the point of view of the director and what he's trying to do i think it's very clear what he's trying to do which is a kind of neo-christian um, encouragement to look around us and see the beauty of the world you know in these times when we're perhaps thinking about what's happening to the planet Having said that, I have many caveats about uh, the religiosity of the film. I'm not a believer myself, and I feel that quite a lot of the voiceover is kind of slightly banal. So I find myself in the middle um, of this film, which has been greeted in some quarters as almost like a religious experience. But I'm not one of those people who's going to walk out. I'll certainly see it again. Right. Peter? How does that chime with your feelings on the well, film? Well, uh, disappointingly, I'm sort of in the same camp, actually. I'm in the middle, too. I mean, you cannot help but admire the scope and ambition, you know, particularly the kind of films coming out of the US now. Malik is a, a maverick and original, a visionary, and these are all things to be applauded. Um, it's a difficult film. It's, you know, I think without getting too philosophical here about it, but I think Heidegger is crucial to this. Malik famously translated Heidegger in one of his, one of the many things he did. And this is, this is, you know, a, a great theme of, of the philosopher Martin Heidegger was, um, 
why is there something rather than nothing, the great ontological question, the wonderment of the universe. And this is an attempt to put those philosophical themes into film, and it's extraordinarily ambitious. My caveat was that I found it weirdly unmoving. I was much more awestruck by it than actually moved. And when it came to the family bits, and there's a there's a there's a death in the in the middle of it that we don't really know very much about, referred to very elliptically. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Nick says, the end where it gets really very overtly Christian. It, it left me slightly cold, I have to say, and I was emotionally not terribly engaged with it, mm. although always admiring of it. Leo, were you moved? I think it's an extraordinary film, uh, it really is. I don't think I was moved, but I wasn't lots of other things that I would like to be ordinarily when I see a film. I think that one of the questions that you ask, you know, does it hang together or is this a really ambitious film? I think that in a way it retires some of these categories uh, because I was kind of thinking, you know, this is a film in which after seeing someone mourn on, I think we presume, the anniversary of his brother's death, uh, cannot sort of process his his feelings at, at 30 years' distance without taking in a planetary scale. So I kind of think this is a really overblown film, or maybe meretricious. I think that... So I think to say, you know, it's overblown, That's these are the words that we use about, like, Alan Parker or Joel Schumacher or Oliver Stone, and this is a film which is just completely exorbitant and like nothing I've, I've ever seen, really, because it really reduces... I mean, he's not interested in any kind of finicky social detail. All he's really interested in is like the essential, the ultimate questions, the kind of thing that Peter was referring to when he said that Malick's engaged mm. with Heidegger. I think he is engaged with Heidegger in terms of these ontological questions, but he's also engaged with Heidegger as someone who comes into, an, into a discipline which has many, many established modes and mannerisms and completely blows it up. So, I mean, his attitude to Heidegger in the in the introduction to Essence of Reasons is that this is someone who, to get anywhere with him at all, we have to engage with him completely. And that's the same with this film. If you take attitudes to it, such as, uh, you know, what is the reason for this nine-minute scene of bubbling lava or uh, squawking dinosaurs or birds in flight, uh, you know, you're not going to get very far. I think it is it is an immersive experience, but I don't think that it's terribly moving. I don't always find it very involving. But I think that I, I'm so grateful for it without necessarily being totally approving of it as, as an aesthetic experience. I wonder if that's because we're not American. Um, one of the things that happened to me in Cannes is so many of my American colleagues came up and said, that is my childhood exactly described. With a saintly mother and a brutish father. Absolutely, mm. apparently so. In those houses, in those tract houses in the, in the, in the suburbs of Texas, you know, it, it seems to uh, be a, a perfect mirror for a lot of people the other side of the pond. And do you think that's why the film is so divisive, Peter? Because it's so sort of specific to certain yeah, people's I think experience? Yeah, that's one reason. I think it's more divisive. It's, it's because of what different people look from cinema, and really this is... This is a kind of very specialist cinema in a way. You know, it's certainly not multiplex cinema. It's uh, it, it's very it's very profound and uh, attempts to be profound. Um, and you have to you have to really respond to the images. I mean, the images are gorgeous. Anyone who's seen Malick film will know he has the the great magic hour thing. You know, of just capturing this extraordinary quantity of light. The rhythm of the editing, I think, is another constant in, in Malick's films. Absolutely hypnotic, beautifully put. And you know, when I'm thinking about, I saw it about three weeks ago now. And when I'm thinking about the Sean Penn character, who is one of the boys grown up and is living in this city. Uh, urban alienation all around him um 
I don't really remember very much about him other than these these very powerful images of him just surrounded by a skyscraper in this kind of quite claustrophobic way as the contrast, of course, to the rural idyll. And it, the whole film speaks in images, and they're the things that last. And it's it's very satisfying for that. Can we talk about the religious aspect of it? The film opens with a quotation from the Book of Job, and it also features whispered questions seemingly directed at God. Um, mm. Nick, how did those religious elements sit with you, and do you think they could be a turn-off for non-believers? Well, I think that the combination of that and the lack of anything that you would describe as a story uh, is going to send many people out the door. But for me, yes, I mean, for me, it's the banality of some of that that I find difficult to deal with. But, you know, what Peter was just saying about the, the rural idyll is an important aspect here, because in all of Malick's films, the rural idyll is there. It's the Garden of Eden, and he's always describing one way or another the fall of mankind. And, you know, where Sean Penn finds himself surrounded by skyscrapers, you know, is, you know, hell a kind of hell uh, where you only get the sky reflected and you can see a glimpse of nature but you can't see nature itself as a non-believer but who was raised Catholic it, it kind of has many reverberations for me that the, the, the woodwork uh, and I'm actually fond of what I call uh, agnostic mysticism and I think you know this can work on that level if, you, if you're susceptible to it but in terms of the voiceover and it's true of nearly all his films the voiceover if you took it if you separated it out from the film there'd be a quite a lot of banality in there and i think there is banality here well one thing that we should say for people who haven't seen the film this is a film in which as well as having no nothing that you could really identify as a traditional dramatic scene it has a lot of sort of muttering it does, as you say it's kind of messages addressed to the abyss or something and he tries to envision god in the beginning and the end and maybe once or twice in the middle as a kind of shape-shifting light i presume that was supposed to be that was supposed to be an unknown inscrutable deity or something onto which things might be projected. But I think that we should distinguish between the element of religion and the element of, of natural history. I mean, the, the quote from Job sets up the theme of the film, really, which is that why, uh, if there is a God, a loving God, is there cruelty and suffering and death and misery and grief and so on? And and that's a question that the, that a film could address without, you know, all the bubbling lava and the foundations of the cosmos and all this kind of stuff so there is on the one hand this religious theme of this family who asks why are these fates being visited upon us if we're believers and also the complicated question of the father figure played by brad pitt who's supposed to be so religious but doesn't treat people well and and so these questions of how to reconcile a, the kind of abstract vision of or normative vision of of, of living and, and behaving as against the realities of being in a family and so forth. The, the, that's a kind of religious question as well. I think that that, I think that's totally legitimate. I don't think it's it's pursued with much complexity because this is a film with with so little in it in a way. I mean, it's a film with where people wander through fields and and say things in Texan accents about God and love and the birds and leaves and stuff. That's not really the traditional route whereby you you uh, pursue themes in in a complex way. So I think that the religious element to me has. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to look at, and it's a film of images, certainly images, and it's a sort of sensual experience, but intellectually it's, it's, it's kind of null. Peter, there's very little in this film that's sort of traditional in structure. It has very mm. little in the way of linear narrative or recognisable scenes. So I was wondering what do you think about the, the performances in the film, such as they oh, are? They're great. They're great. The kids are amazing. I mean, absolutely just so naturalistic and there's so much to read into it. But, you know, I was going to say something else that 
This is a very banal point to make, but it so much depends on what you take with you into the movie theatre when you see this film, you know. And on that religious aspect, just by complete coincidence, about two hours before seeing the film, I had read this extraordinary piece in The New Yorker um, by a man who had to deal with the death of his daughter. And it was very, it was by a non-believer, and he was very angry at all the people who tried to give him religious solace. And this this beautifully written piece is full of this kind of anger that, you know, people say suffering is worth it. Well, it's not. Suffering is not worth anything. It's just awful. There's nothing redemptive about it, you know, in that kind of mood. And I was very taken by it. And to suddenly see those images at the end of the film where... You get this, the mother as, as kind of Mother Mary, and it all, it all gets very allegorical and Christian. It just irritated me beyond belief. I think I was bringing that kind of baggage in with me to the cinema. And, you know, it's one of those films you have to go in, and it, 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 it tries to touch deep within you, and it will make you think about what you believe about the world, maybe, at best. Okay. Um, Nick, could you talk a bit about how this compares and fits in with Terence Malick's other films? And- well, it, it's consistent in the sense that it, you know, as I mentioned before, it it it, it deals with this uh, fall of mankind from the, the Garden of Eden, and this concern uh, uh, around uh, how human beings cope with, you know, mag- the awesome majesty of nature in one way or another. Whether it's you know two kids on the run in the in the in Montana or. Um, people in the wheat fields uh, earning a living as in uh, days of heaven there's a consistency of theme throughout his whole work and it's also uh, interesting to know that this film is very similar to one that he tried to make uh, or at least the the sort of uh, origins of the universe aspect of this film seems to be a development of a film he tried to make many years ago called Q which uh, you know seems seems very similar you know, I mean, there is a, there's there's an auteurist consistency, uh, which isn't just about the aesthetic. It's also about the kinds of people that he's interested in, people who are uh, pushing themselves to confront a kind of religious experience of the world. <laughs> Although he's somewhat lost the sense of humour. I mean, my favourite line in Badlands is, Kit said I should look at the scenery, so I did. <laughs> and that kind of, you, you could actually use that as a kind of, uh, mm. to carve on Terence Maddox's gravestone one day, um, because that's what his films encourage you to do. Uh, but it's, it, it could use a little leavening these days. It's, it is a little bit pompous. This sort of ties in with something I was thinking about, which is, you know, that there are actually very few auteurist filmmakers who are still able and willing to make these sorts of big films. Do you think there's a hunger for this? Do you think do you think there's an audience for it? Apparently the film is performing quite well at, at the US and French box offices. So do you think people are uh, ready for a return of this kind of big auteurist filmmaking? I don't I think I don't think it's an example you can extrapolate much from because however difficult it is it stars Sean Penn and Brad Pitt. So <laughs> I, for me it would be hard to account for its success without mentioning those factors. I think that Nick's right that there has been a consistency through his films, but there's also been a real intensification. I mean, watching this film is in a way nothing like watching Badlands, which, for all its sort of dear diary voiceover, which is kind of similar to the voiceovers we get here, except much plain and more direct and a bit more useful in terms of giving us information about what the hell's going on. But I think that, yeah, his his retreat from the scene, his increasing belief that he can impart what he wishes to impart 
uh, in a, through a direct route, really, by this kind of pantheistic delving into landscapes and so forth, rather than trying to dramatise his themes in a, in, a, in a legible narrative, as he really did well, pretty much up to this, the last film, The New World. I mean, it's, I thought at the time this was about as far as he can go on the, in the raindrop mode, and obviously I was wrong. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure that he's not going to... I mean, people are queuing up to work with him, but I can't imagine someone like Brad Pitt working with him if he wants to go further than this. Although, of course, Brad Pitt had no idea what the film was going to be like when he signed on to do it. I didn't think he may be in his wildest dreams or nightmares. He could have envisaged this thing. They got, they got palm door, didn't they? Uh, and yet, you know, you've got there probably Brad Pitt's best performance ever. Yeah. You know, and that's because he's been taken out of his comfort zone and made to behave in a completely different way. Uh, and it is a kind of a bleak performance. It's an, a performance that's not performing to the camera. It's performing to the scene in a way that movie stars usually fight to not do. You know, it's it's it, and well, that's that's the interesting thing about Malik is he has got the kind of uh, cachet that means that actors are prepared to do things they would never do for anybody else. Peter, in terms of the. <laughs> The sort of um, structure of the film. I mean, the approach of the film, the sort of experimental nature of it. Do you think it represents a way forward for cinema that we haven't seen before? Oh, I don't think so. No. I mean, uh, as Leo said, it's so reliant on the stars for doing any box office a film like this. And uh, are there going to be enough Hollywood stars wanting to get involved with with a project like this? I can't see it. There might be one or two. Um, but I'm just, you know, I'm just delighted that films like this are being made, you know, despite all the all the reservations about it. It makes um, such a great change. And I get kind of nostalgic about the 1970s, which was when I got into film, and uh, and films were more difficult and ambitious then, I think, mainstream US films. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really pleased to see that he's still on that track. I think that's rather a nice note to end on. So thank you all very much. And thanks to you all for listening. The Arts Podcast was produced by Griselda Murray-Brown. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.